0: To distress situations, a Reed Smith podcast. On this podcast, we cover current issues in financial restructuring over a wide variety of industries. I'm Keith Arzeda, a partner in Reed Smith's global restructuring and insolvency group, and I'm one of the hosts of this podcast. Whether your company is a financial institution or an in industry, we hope our commentary will be useful in managing the risks associated with distress. If you have any questions about our topics, feel free to contact our speakers. Welcome to the next episode of Distressed Situations. This is Keith Arzada. I'm a partner with Reed Smith. I am delighted today to be joined by Michael Elliott. He's the founder and managing partner of Peak Franchise Capital. By way of background, Peak Franchise Capital is a boutique advisory and consulting firm focused primarily on the restaurant and franchise industry. I'm going to let Mike describe a little bit of his industry experience, but I want to uh, let the listeners know that I've known Mike for nearly 15 years, and I think that's going to make both Mike and I feel old. Uh, Mike, you want to introduce yourself?
1: Sure. Thanks, Keith, for having me today. I appreciate it very much. Just by way of background, in the short story version, uh, I spent the last 20-plus years in the restaurant space primarily at large franchisors and restaurant operating companies starting my restaurant career in uh, Yum! Brands Pizza Hut, working in their M&A function and ultimately, leading that function during the process of refranchising several thousands of restaurants in systems. Also, wound up doing some restructuring work during that process as we had our fair share of ups and downs through the industry. Also, continued my career at Burger King Corp. After TPG, Bain, and Goldman purchased Burger King in two, late 2002. I was asked to come help them with a major restructuring project with a few hundred franchisees. took us three years to complete the project for for those uh, private equity investors. Ultimately, after commuting back and forth to Miami for three years, we settled down here in Dallas and formed Peak Franchise Capital, which is 15 years ago now, hard to believe. And uh, that's first where you and I met. We, uh, as you said, we are a boutique investment banking firm, really focused on restaurants and franchise companies uh, that may actually involve other franchisors as well. But primarily, probably 95% of our work is in the restaurant and franchise space. M&A activity, buy side, sell side, restructuring and bankruptcy, and capital arrangement. So all transactional focused in, the, in that space.
0: Thanks, Mike. So we're going to get to our substance here shortly, but I thought it might be nice to give you an opportunity to tell our listeners what you do for fun. <laughs> Besides talking to you, right?
1: You know, our, our, we're empty nesters, so our time now is spent with the grandchildren. Uh, they're nearby and we enjoy that time. And, and certainly once you become empty nesting, you... Uh, you actually enjoy some travel time. So travel and golf would take up the fun time
0: uh, along with those grandkids, so. Thanks, Mike, that's great, that is great. So as I alluded to, uh, the topic of today's podcast is a discussion of current issues in the restaurant and franchise businesses. Obviously with a particular focus on distress, the idea today, we wanna take a deep dive into starting with restaurants, talk about some recent cases, what's happened in those cases. Mike, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about any common threads that you've seen in those cases. I'm going to chime in with some legal tidbits along the way, but let me turn it to you to start us out. What have you seen recently and what have you seen recently in terms of distressed situations in the restaurant space?
1: You know, Keith, the no secret, right? The 2020 year, the COVID impact, the pandemic had a significant impact on restaurant companies across the country, across the world, retail as well. And I think we have seen a significant amount of closures through that time period. In fact, over 100,000 restaurants have closed in the last 12 months. Significant impact. That's almost 20% of the entire restaurant total. So significant impact in the industry and to the consumer. I'll tell you a little bit about Kind of our experience, we were in the process of two, tran- three transactions, two sell side, one buy side last March when dining rooms closed, and that impact was significant. Those deals went away, the distress picked up. There was a lot of uncertainty around what was going to happen in the industry, just a complete unknown. And in, in fact, I had. Somebody asked me if, you know, if I'd ever been through this before, and I you know, suggested that I was old, but not, not around in 1918 when we all experienced, when they experienced the Spanish flu. So this was all new for every one of us as to how long this was going to be, what the impact was completely going to be on, on closures. And one thing that actually did happen after those first few weeks of dining room closures in the quick service restaurant industry, we saw a turn. And it actually went up. Sales began to go up as the quick service restaurants were able to deliver tr- through their drive throughs They were able to give their food to their customers. And so you saw an actual turn for the quick service restaurant chains. It's actually turned out to be a terrific year. 2020 turned out to be a terrific year for that segment of the industry. Uh, there were franchise franchisors and franchisees that had great successes. Uh, in that space in the qsr space not as much for the casual dining for the fast casual dining for the fine dining the dining room closures were significant
0: impacts so you'd used a couple of terms there you'd use qsr and casual dining can you compare those for our listeners so everybody knows what we're talking about
1: sure in the quick service restaurant we would talk about McDonald's Wendy's Popeyes KFC Taco Bell You have dining rooms, but you also have drive-throughs in, if not all, most uh, of those asset types. In the fast casual segment, you would have a dining room. Uh, Normally, it is in a fast casual setting, which would imply that there is no table service. It's usually counter service to you. Um, Casual would be you and I going to Applebee's uh, and sitting down and having table service brought to us. Of course, fine dining would be our upscale uh, restaurants, same thing, you know, in restaurant dining.
0: So hopefully that helps. It does. So I know you followed the cases that were, that were filed, and I'm going to touch on a couple of the, the bigger cases and, and try to get your thoughts on them. We saw two cases in the Southern District of Texas, CeCe's Pizza and Chuck E. Cheese. And then in Delaware, Ruby Tuesday filed I would like to know what your thoughts are regarding these concepts. Chuck E. Cheese was a a franchise concept. I don't know about Ruby Tuesday and CeCe's Pizza. Each of these seems to be, if I've got your definition right, a casual dining location, not a quick service. Each case involved the rejection of a substantial number of non-residential real property leases and those bankruptcy code jocks that are listening will know that, you know, those rejections occur under the bankruptcy code. There's a cap on lease rejection damage claims under 502 B six of the code. And bankruptcy is a very powerful tool when you've got a company with a lot of retail locations out there and you want to reject leases or shed leases, get rid of that long term liability on your balance sheet in exchange for a capped claim and the ability to move out of the space. That's kind of the legal side of that. What did you see from the business side?
1: Yeah, CC's would be, well, all three of those would actually be you know, more casual dining than not. The unique aspect, of course, of C, uh, Chuck E. Cheese's, of CC, is that it has an entertainment capacity to it or functionality to it. CC's does as well, actually has a gaming component in, in their stores. Let me just, let me talk to CC's for a second. That was a, we're familiar with the brand and that was a situation where um, the brand had been acquired by a private equity firm several years ago, a substantial amount of debt on the company. And it's unique in, in the sense that They also, not only were they a franchisor, predominantly most of their stores were owned by franchisees, but they also owned company and operated company restaurants as well. So you wound up with kind of a franchisor company operations. And the one unique thing is they also owned the distribution company. So you had a situation there where buffet chains were obviously impacted severely, when when dining rooms closed and certainly when dining rooms, rooms were going to open, not many people were wanting to go back through a buffet line. So the chain actually experienced a significant shortfall in cash. Cash tightness occurred, forcing them ultimately you know, not to collect royalties, uh, work with their franchisees. But not only were they not collecting royalties, they also weren't able to receive payments on the distribution side of the business. So it was kind of a double whammy for them in, in that business. Ultimately, they did file. Uh, they took that uh, out to the market to sell. They had a, uh, a group, a, a, I think it D&G investors is actually who bought it, who we happen to know the families behind those two groups coming together. They're very experienced franchisee, or restaurant operators and franchisees, so they, they do both. And I think they'll do great things with the brand coming out of this. I think the business went from probably close to 400 units to maybe two 300 units, so significant amount of closures. And I just actually was in contact with the uh, president there recently. He's very excited about the future because of what they've been able to do to the balance sheet, which is essentially get rid of all the debt. On They'll be leaning moving forward, right? Well, I think so. I think they're certainly smaller, but I think, you know, sometimes there's a little bit of, of cleaning out that occurs. And just as, a, uh, as an aside for a second, is franchisors, oftentimes you're, you're really looking for your franchise system to develop stores and not close stores. And uh, this situation with the pandemic has actually brought to light the opportunity to exit, to your earlier point about leases, and rejecting those to exit some of those locations that just aren't profitable, whether the trade area moved, you know, three years ago and just doesn't work any longer can be critical. Otherwise, we we as a franchisor or want you to keep that store open. But now let's take advantage of the of the bankruptcy filing in the code to allow for those closures and clean up uh, the, you know, the asset portfolio, if you wish which is which kind of is a great segue into ruby tuesday's for a second ruby tuesday's casual dining chain that's been around for many 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 years i think at one time it may have had 700 plus restaurants i think it's down to maybe 200 uh, over over the last many years that was a situation also where the the company was publicly held probably 2016 1617 time frame private equity firm came in, bought the uh, company, took it private. It was levered. And the difference there is they had a lot of owned real estate. So they owned a lot of their fee properties, were able to actually over time sell a lot of that real estate, that fee property, um, reducing their leverage. Unfortunately, the customer counts in that particular brand continued to decline through those years, too, from 2017 on. And I think at the end of the day, in 2020, with the pandemic occurring, still having some leverage on the balance sheet, cash flow getting tight. Uh, they also had a uh, underfunded pension liability that ultimately triggered the bankruptcy filing. They took that to market under the, into the to look for a 363 uh, buyer. Unfortunately, they didn't really receive any topping bids on uh, the debt and so the high bidder on that ultimately was the was the lender who uh, who acquired it in a debt for equity deal.
0: So we're gonna try to wrap up on the restaurant space here, Mike, and, and 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 then let's talk about some franchise issues. I do have one particular question was what do you see happening to the mom and pop restaurant? I walk through the city streets, I walk through my local place, these places are closed. And I don't know if it's because they don't share the support of a franchise network. They don't have the the trade recognition that a franchise restaurant has. I don't know if these are maybe financed very thinly or operated very thinly on really small margins. What do you see there? It's a great question.
1: As I mentioned a well while ago, Keith, over 100,000 restaurants have closed the, throughout the country you know, we we like to go to the headlines and see that, and at one point I counted, I think there were roughly 50 fairly large restaurant companies that had filed for bankruptcy protection in the last 12 months. And there's a lot of names, you know, we know. So coming out of those 50, you know there's a lot of closures, but you start adding that up and it really doesn't make a dent in the hundred thousand. And where the majority of that really does come from are the mom and pops. And Those may be the one unit, two unit people that, you know, this is uh, the restaurant business really is a penny's business. They may have been there for many, many years. And and I think we could all go through our major cities and pick, you know, one restaurant that just didn't make it. I think here in Dallas, there was a Highland Park cafeteria, something that you and I may be familiar with, that is an institution and just didn't make it out and knew they weren't going to make it out early on in the process. Uh, but it's a one-unit company, family-owned company restaurant, and it just—it was not going to survive. So I think we—we've seen a lot of that throughout the country. I think there's a lot of that as expertise on, you know, do you try to survive? Is there enough capital to do it? You don't have a brand to go sell. So it's not like you're out there trying to parlay this in to save anything out of it. It's really you know, there's nothing left there other than a space that could turn into somebody else's space. And so you're, you probably are looking to find a, you know, a sublease opportunity, or you're looking to hand the keys back to the landlords in some cases. And if you own the fee properties, you're looking to close it up, stop the cash flow losses and sell the real estate to
0: the highest bidder. Mike, for what it's worth, the uh, small businesses that I've uh, advised and spoken to during the course of the pandemic that have survived, have really survived based upon two fundamental pillars. The first being aggressive negotiations with landlords and getting rent reductions or having a landlord that was just looking out for their tenants and providing the rent reductions voluntarily. And the second thing was the Paycheck Protection Program provided liquidity and the ability to keep employees paid. And regardless of what your political leanings are, and and we don't want to have that discussion here, the PPP program really provided the ability for a lot of small businesses to borrow money from the government that is fully forgivable if used for the proper purposes. And those generally are rent and payroll in a way that just is not available in the market. Those loans are not market loans. It was clearly the government looking out for small business owners and business owners that that I knew that took those loans used them. They used them for the right purposes, and honestly, they were very much the savior of those businesses during the during the pandemic. The other benefit that occurred is a lot of sub- small business loans were actually paid. The principal and interest was paid for under that program, and so some businesses actually had three things working for them. They had rent reductions. PPP loans and their SBA loans being paid by the by the federal government, and those are the businesses that survived, and and I'm grateful for them, as I know you are, because there are local businesses, and that was one thing that I saw during the pandemic that was a, a bit of a silver lining to see some of those businesses that survived and rebounded.
1: Just to add one one point to that, and I'll give you a quick example is. Um, We were working with a very large franchise company, franchisee, in the quick service restaurant space that was. we were preparing to file pre-COVID. They had experienced several years of declines. And between, to your point, between the PPP loans, the rent reductions, unknowingly, at the time we applied for the PPP loan, unknowingly, We didn't know the business was coming back. And it came back with a, you know, just a skyrocket. They actually wound up with the best 12 month period they've ever had in their history of their company in 20 years from a cash flow standpoint. But had the PPP loan and had the rent reductions not occurred quickly, they wouldn't have made it through to the other side. We would have had to file, go through the process. We might have been okay coming out, but we would have probably had to sell the business. And so the equity owners wound up. We were able to get it all done out of court, the restructuring done all out of court. And we're actually going to be looking at taking care of all those creditors now on a post kind of 12-month basis because the performance has been so strong. So to your point, it, it actually was a huge benefit. And I agree about the political comment, no matter which way you look. Have you ever seen our... Congress move as quickly as they did even with some of the holes that it had in it have they ever moved that fast to be able to do something like that for our small business owners
0: I've never seen it and I will tell you there is a countless number of of employees at those small businesses that got paychecks through the pandemic as a result of it absolutely uh, and again we're not talking about politics here yeah uh, it that that's the fact that's right. So let's, let's take the last couple of minutes here, Mike, and let's talk about franchise issues. I think one thing that might be interesting to our listeners is just to hear your thoughts on the franchise model a little bit from the perspective of both the franchisor and the franchisee. You know, I'd like to say it's simple, right? It's probably
1: less simple than the, or more, more complicated than this. But the franchisor's perspective is they're looking for operators that can run a brand that can be very replicable cannot be operated with consistency is attractive to consumers and they want to find those operators that can do that for them it's it's a collect the royalty stream collect the marketing funds grow the brand and provide guidance for those franchisees that's that's probably the franchise org piece in its simplistic concept Franchisees have to deliver on what the franchisor has provided to them, and if you look in the restaurant space, there's a lot of restaurant concepts that we all know that have been there for many, many years. Um, they they didn't start with five thousand restaurants; they grew to that, and those franchisees were really the heart and soul of the growth for those franchise companies. Whether that's you know, as I mentioned, KFC or Taco Bell. Those were grown on the backs of of great franchisees. The big difference there, and this is a struggle sometimes of the balancing act that franchisors, franchisees face, there's a little bit of um, disconnect when it comes to incentives. Franchisors are incented on top line sales because, because they're collecting the revenue stream of royalties. And of course, franchisees care about what falls through all the way to the bottom line, which is the EBITDA that's coming out of those restaurants they're operating or the stores they're operating. So there is a little bit of disconnect there as to the economic equation. But I've always found that if a franchisor is looking out for its franchisees in the appropriate manner, sales will come and profits will come and everybody wins. And it's kind of the, uh, you know, rising tides, lift fall boats. If you can grow sales as a franchisor for your franchisees, you win on the top line that you're collecting and the franchisees will have great flow through to their bottom line. Interestingly enough, and we see this and I've seen this through many years working with distress situations where franchisors control that brand, they control the brand rights. The franchisor rights, they control your your right as a franchisee to use those trademarks. When we get into distress situations and with creditors and, and bankruptcy situations with the creditors, oftentimes the creditors look across the table and say, well, we'll just come in and foreclose on your assets and we'll, be, we'll become the operator of those restaurants or those stores. And it's not quite that simple as the franchisor actually does have some rights to control those marks. And so that provides a unique opportunity in, in franchising and in franchisors bankruptcy situations where you really have not just the creditors sitting at the table, not just your, your lenders and your landlords sitting at the table and your unsecured creditors committee sitting at the table, but you also have a franchisor sitting there who may be an unsecured, who may be a creditor as well. But if nothing else, they actually control those, those rights to use the brand. So you have to have those discussions if you're trying to create
0: a a plan to come out. So let me, let me put a little law around what you're talking about. And that is a franchise agreement is not freely assignable. There's an intellectual property component to that, that gives the franchisor a significant amount of leverage in the negotiations. So if you have a Burger King franchisee, a McDonald's franchisee, a Wendy's franchisee that finds themselves in bankruptcy, they're going to need help from that franchise or if they want to transition that brand to a new operator. You know, the franchisor is going to be able to have a say and it'll be a big say in the transfer of that intellectual property, which is what you alluded to. It's the, it's the transfer of the right to use the trademark, copyrighted materials, the secret sauce, so to speak, if you're uh, you want to put it in a, in a restaurant term. So I think those issues have always been challenging and you're right. When you're sitting around the negotiating table, it adds an extra dynamic. Because you are not just in a lender-creditor relationship anymore. You actually have this third party that's involved, has a stake in it, and a very vested interest in the outcome. Correct. What do you see as being the primary distress issue when you're looking at a franchise or franchisee relationship? And if you can't generalize in this, that's, it's, this may be an unfair question, but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts.
1: You know, Keith. I think it varies. Um, Franchisee, just franchisor. uh, Every situation tends to have some commonality and and some differences. Go back to the CC's comment earlier. You know, the distribution company is pretty unique there, and, and causes some challenges there. A pure franchisor that is trying to collect you know royalty revenue and doesn't have any operations. If its franchisees aren't making money, it it can have some uniqueness if they're having to file for bankruptcy as a franchisor. Um, I think it varies. Oftentimes, and we've seen this through the years, franchisees are great operators of their restaurants. And if they run, run them for a long period of time, oftentimes they got their eye off the ball a little bit. Overhead started getting bloated their general and administrative expenses and a downturn in sales causes cash flow challenges that they didn't know how to deal with you know they'd just been running their business for a long time what we what we often try to do is make sure when they're in these distress situations that they when we find out about them we get involved is that there is an understanding of the data behind it you know what's going on within the financial situations of the company and making sure that you have great professionals around you to help you get out of this, whether that's out of court or whether that's in court, make sure you bring in a good team of professionals to do this. And as you can imagine, I said this earlier, these are pennies businesses. So for them to often to look to you or to us or others, they look at it and go, those are expensive dollars to have to pay. But they don't they don't do this all the time. You know, they run restaurants and so or run their stores. It's really important to make sure that they bring in the right partners to help them get through these. And as I as I mentioned early on, we we've done our fair share of restructuring and bankruptcy work for the last twenty years, whether it was at a corporate level or, or even here. And that's something that I communicate to those those potential clients all the time: is make sure we get the right team around us.
0: Well, Mike, you are definitely the right team. I am very grateful for you joining me today on Distressed Situations, and we look forward to having you back again in the future. And to our listeners, we look forward to having you on the next episode of Distressed Situations.
1: Keith, thanks for inviting me. I look forward to it again. See you
0: soon. Thanks, Mike. Distressed Situations is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Allie McCardle. For more information about Reed Smith's restructuring and insolvency practice, please email distress situations at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and on our social media accounts at Reed Smith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. All rights reserved.